You are listening to audio from Pastor Mark Driscoll. To find more helpful content like this, as well as daily devotions, Ask Pastor Mark videos, resources for leaders, and much more, visit markdriscoll.org. While there, you can also make a donation that will help support the ministry and subscribe to continue getting Bible-based teaching. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please feel free to come and see Pastor Mark at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. If you've got a Bible, go to uh, Luke chapter 1. We're uh, looking at the, uh, the entrance of Jesus into human history. And it's really interesting because uh, we are the only species that tells stories. And we tell stories to make sense of our life. And God being so good and gracious to us, he gives us his word. And his word really is, it's one big story. And then as we read that one big story, we see little stories of people and circumstances. And then that helps us to interpret our life in light of God's story and our place in his history. And so what we are studying is the entrance of Jesus into human history. And we will do so over the course of this holiday season in Luke chapters 1 and 2. And he is the great historical storyteller of the New Testament. Everything he shares with us is actual, historical, and factual. But he shows us some details about the people surrounding the entrance of Jesus that we wouldn't know about if he hadn't recorded them. So we'll jump right into uh, Luke chapter 1 verses 5 through 10 where we see that God should be our only king. So here we go. In the days of Herod. Now Herod's a bad guy. He comes from this family line called the Edomites. They descend from this guy named Esau way back in the Old Testament. And they're always warring against God's people. This is like the Hatfields and the McCoys. There's, there's this great collision and conflict between these two groups. And Herod and his family are always trying to kill God's people and their family. His name is Herod the Great. He is also called the king of the Jews. So he's got a high self-esteem, this guy. Uh, His name is Herod. He is the king of Judea. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy too. So there was God's temple up on the temple mount. Next door was Herod's house. You know, you've got, you know, a lot of pride when you're like, well, God can rule and I can rule and we're sort of equals and he rules spiritually and I rule politically. He's one of those guys who is building his own kingdom. You know, you're like Herod when you don't, think that you should be over God, but you don't think that God should be over you. You think that God should be alongside of you and that he has his opinions. You have your opinions. He has his way of doing things. You have your way of doing things and he's welcome to help you if you deem him required and necessary, but otherwise he should keep to himself. That's how Herod lives. Literally, that's where his home resides. That's how he conducts himself. This is how he thinks and this is how he behaves. And if you're sort of living for your own kingdom, you're living for your own glory, you're living under your own dominion. If you want God to be alongside of you, but you want no one to be in authority over you, you have the heart of Herod. That's the heart of Herod. He was a very affluent man as well. In addition to his his home in uh, Jerusalem, he also had a palace that he would go to for vacations. It was on the sea. It's a beautiful area. My family have been to where his uh, temple home was, as well as his seaport home. He had a freshwater pool on a saltwater view. This guy lived a high life. He was incredibly powerful. He was incredibly affluent. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. So now we meet this other character. This guy named Zechariah is a priest. This is basically the equivalent of like a pastor. He has got a rural congregation of God's people. He would preach and pray and love and serve. He's out in an area that has a small population base. He's got a little tiny congregation. He's living a simple life. Might even be a bivocational guy slugging it out for the Lord. And he was from the division of Abijah. Now, the way it worked, there were 24 divisions of priests, 750 priests in each division, 18,000 priests altogether. So we read that, we think, oh, he was a priest, 18,000 priests. So this is in small rural areas. You put a priest here, priest there, priest here, priest there, synagogue here, synagogue there, kind of like a church with a pastor. And there's 18,000 of them. And they would make the pilgrimage from wherever their rural residence was to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the mount, to the presence of God. And they would make that trip twice a year, along with the other 750 priests in their division. And it says he had a wife, so he's married to one of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. So they're both 
families that are in ministry. When you hear Aaron, think priestly line. This is where ministry is handed off from generation to generation. And so he basically marries a pastor's daughter. That's what I had the great gift from God to do in marrying my wife, Grace. She's a pastor's daughter. And so Elizabeth comes from a family of ministry. Zechariah is also a family of ministry. And here's how God often works. God likes to take ministry families and give them children to do ministry. This is why sometimes ministry is generational. Grace and I didn't fully understand this when we started ministry because our first ministry started, we had no children and now we've got five kids. So moving here to the valley, we started having a conversation. Hey, what do you guys feel like God's will is for our family? Some of the kids started saying, hey, let's start a church. First one you started, you didn't have kids. Now you got five kids. You know, let's all do this together as a family project, as a family project. That's a good idea. So a lot of our ministry here at the Trinity Church, just so you know, it comes out of our dining room table. We've got a dining room table that we had built to fit our family and our friends. And it was designed by our daughter. And when people come over, we give them a Sharpie rather than a... uh, a guest book, we have them get underneath the table and sign it. And so that's like our version of the guest book. And so a lot of the decisions for the ministry here at the Trinity Church, they come from our dining room table. The kids are like, hey, we want to plant a church. Okay, what do you want to call it? So we picked the Trinity Church to honor the church that Grace's daddy pastored that was called the Trinity Church. Um, what do you want the music to be like? We talk about it. What do you want the baptism shirts to be like? So one of our daughters, you know, creates that, uh, designs that. Uh, what do you guys want to do for kids ministry? How do we want this whole thing to work? So we make a lot of the decisions at the dining room table to the degree that one of my daughters recently asked, am I on the board? I said, no, but I'm open to it. So um, our thought is that if, you know, if you love and serve the Lord and God gives you kids, then raise the kids to love and serve the Lord. And don't just have a ministry that reaches out to families, but reaches out from families. And that's sort of the experience that Elizabeth and Zachariah had. They would have grown up in ministry homes. They would have grown up doing ministry together as a family. And now they are married, serving the Lord, running a ministry in a rural area. And this is a crazy statement. And they were both righteous before God. That's a big statement, right? How many of you would not put that on your LinkedIn profile? I could type 40 words a minute and I'm righteous in the sight of God. I mean, that's a big statement. And, and, and we, can, we can appear righteous in the sight of others because they don't really know us, right? You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool God any of the time because he sees and knows all. And it says not only are they righteous, but they're righteous in the sight of God who sees and knows all. It's possible to live a holy life. It's possible to live a godly life. It's possible to lead an obedient life. It's possible to lead an exemplary life. Sometimes the way that we tell testimonies in the church is not very helpful. We find the one person who did the worst thing. We bring them up and have them give their testimony. And they'll be like, yo, I I used to kill people and I... You know, I ate my mom and I was a terrorist and we'll edit that out. That was inappropriate. But anyways, I used to do a whole bunch of really bad things. And then I met Jesus and now I'm feeding the homeless and handing out Gideon's Bibles. We're like, oh, that was a good story. And then all the people in the church are like, I need to kill somebody so I can get on stage. And it sort of, it sort of gives us the impression that the only testimony is like the, 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 the really bad one. That's like a made for TV movie, Right. These guys have a boring testimony. Elizabeth, what's your, my parents love the Lord. My grandparents love the Lord. My great, great, great grandparents love the Lord. And, and I love the Lord. Anything else? No. Okay, that's boring. How about you, Zachariah? Oh, my parents love the Lord. And my grandparents love the Lord. And my great grandparents love the Lord. And my great, great, great grandparents love the Lord. Me and my wife love the Lord. You ever killed anybody? No. You done crack? No. You ever done crack with somebody who killed somebody? No. Okay. <laughs> Boring. What a boring testimony. Let me tell you, I'm all for boring testimonies. I pray that God gives all five of my kids a really boring testimony. Got you kids that are here like, I need an exciting testimony. No, you don't. We got plenty of those. We need more boring testimonies. If God gives you an exciting testimony, we'll receive it as an evidence of God's grace. But if you can go for a boring testimony on behalf of your parents, I would beg you to shoot for a boring testimony. Amen. Second the motion. All in favor. Okay. Boring testimony, godly family, godly people walking in the sight of God. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly. And what? All the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Have you read the book? That's a lot. That's a lot. They obey the Lord. Doesn't mean they're perfect. It means that they walk in 
the grace of God. And when they fail or sin, they repent, they return to the Lord, and then they continue forward quickly with holiness and progress. You can do that. You can do that. You can do that. I don't know about you, but for sure you can. Okay. We all, I'm just kidding. Come on, come on, come on. Let's have a little fun today. Okay. We're in God's word. We're in God's house. You're God's people. This is a good story. Amen. There's hope for you. There's hope for them. They walk with God. You can walk with God. They were righteous in the sight of God. You can be righteous in the sight of God. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're battling with, whatever is trying to overtake you, greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. There is hope and there is victory for the people of God. And we see it right here with two people. They are walking together in a marriage. Wouldn't it be awesome if you and your spouse were walking hand in hand in the purposes of God? That's what we want for you. But they had no child. How it gets dark. Because Elizabeth was barren and they were advanced in years. That means they're old. By old in that culture, it meant they were at least 50. I'm 46. That doesn't seem old to me. That seems like there's a lot of tread still left on the tires, okay? But in that culture, if you were over 50, you were old. So here they are in ministry, loving and serving God together. There is a desire, a longing of their heart that is unfilled. Is it a bad thing to desire a baby? Children are a blessing. Some of you say, you haven't met my kid. Okay, children can be an expensive, screaming all night, teething, throwing a fit, snotty-nosed blessing, okay? But they're still a blessing. They're still a blessing. They know that children are a blessing and they want to be parents. This would be necessary not only for their emotional, but also their financial well-being. Because in our day, when you get old, you lean into your social security, your retirement account, or your investments. In that day, you would raise a child, and then when you grew old, they would care for you as you cared for them. So without a child, that meant that you were in economic danger of poverty. And so they are a poor family in ministry in a rural area They don't have much and they don't have a child and they don't have an inheritance awaiting them. They're in a desperate position. Some of you ladies can emotionally identify with Elizabeth. You would love to be a mom and you have been unable for some reason to become pregnant or to carry to term. Perhaps you've suffered a lot of miscarriages. And it says it was because Elizabeth was barren. And now they've reached that age where it's too late. Like our childbearing years are behind us. We're not physically able. This this leaves them with some options. They could get very bitter against God. God, you, you, you should bless us. We've obeyed you. We're godly people. We tithe, we serve, we care, we give. You know our hearts. We've done what's right. And you've done nothing. They could have a sense of entitlement. God, I've given to you all that you've asked of me. You've not given to me what I've asked of you. They could sin and rebel. Well, God, since you owe me, I have the right to rebel because after all, you are now in debt to me for your failure. Or they could have done like another couple in the Bible did. I don't know if you know the story in the Old Testament, first book of the Bible, Abraham and Sarah, similar story, right? God has a ministry calling on their life. They're both barren. They can't have a baby. Rather than accepting God's will or waiting for God's will, what they ultimately do, they come up with a crazy idea to commit adultery so that Abraham could impregnate another woman and that they could have a baby through another woman. It ends up being one of the worst decisions in the history of the world. It ends up creating a Jewish line and what ultimately becomes an Arab line. It creates Judaism and Christianity and Islam. And a lot of the conflict we have in the world today is because one couple wanted to have a baby. And they chose to do so apart from God's will and they chose to do so through adultery. This couple does not do that. They don't get bitter. They don't sense entitlement. 
They don't demand from God. They don't rebel against God. They don't take matters into their own hands. But every day, Elizabeth has a small funeral in her heart. I wish I was a mom. She has a godly grief. I want to tell you, dear friend, it's okay to have a godly grief. To have a godly grief because their life has not looked the way that they wanted. Some of you have desires and longings that are not ungodly. They're just unfulfilled. You wanted to get married, but you're single. You wanted to stay married, but you're divorced. You wanted to have a child, but you were infertile. You got pregnant, but you miscarried. You wanted your children to love and serve the Lord, and they're grown, and they don't. You wanted to be healthy, and you're sick. You wanted to live a life where you could be exceedingly generous, and you're struggling just to survive. Certain longings that God puts on your heart are not ungodly. Sometimes they are unfulfilled, and it's okay to respond with godly grief. That's the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the story continues. Now, he was serving as a priest before God. So here's what happens. There's the temple. The temple is the connecting point between God and us, between heaven and earth. When God had a temple constructed, I need you to know it's not because God needed a home. I grew up next to an airport where people would fly in from all over the world and they would sort of relocate to the United States and they'd bring all their religions with them. So my friends growing up, they were Sikh and Muslim and Buddhist and Hindu and all kinds of Shintoism, all kinds of religions. And oftentimes when I would go to my friend's house, sometimes on the mantle of their home, there would be a little shrine. And I would ask, well, what's that? Well, there's a spirit that lives in there and we welcome the spirit into our home. Sometimes I'd go out of my friend's yard and there'd be a a bigger shrine outside and they'd put candles or food or offerings in there. And I would ask, what's that for? Well, that's to house the spirit that watches over our family and we invite them in to be present with us. So we create these homes to invite spirits to live with us. All of that is demonic. All of that is satanic. All of that is a counterfeit to God's glorious and good kingdom. And the truth is that God doesn't need a house. God is without beginning or end. God is unlimited. God is so big that we could never build a house big enough for God. And God doesn't need a home because God's not homeless. Right? God's not homeless. So why is there a home? It's the house of God. It's not the house for God. There's a difference. The house for God, we built this and then God lives in it. The house of God, it belongs to God, but God doesn't live there. It's for his people, not for him. Do you get the difference? God doesn't need a home. We do. And we go to God's house to meet with God and God determines that the temple would be the place in the Holy of Holies where his presence would dwell on the earth. And this is as close as people could get to the presence of God. And God has always allowed a way for his people to be in his presence. In in Genesis, you see Jacob's ladder come down. That's God's presence with his people. In the days of the Israelites, where they're marching through the wilderness, there is a cloud that comes and leads them as the presence of God during the day. And there's fire by night that leads them as the presence of God. There would have been, um, previous to the days of the temple, there would have been the tabernacle, which was more portable, and that was God's presence on the earth. And then there is the temple, which is God's presence on the earth, until ultimately the Lord Jesus comes as God's presence on the earth and then the temple is destroyed in 70 AD and now I've got a great thing to tell you God's people are his presence on the earth and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the children of God so that wherever we are we can be in the presence of God because God's presence goes with us and we become his temple So all of this is foreshadowing the forthcoming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we see the temple, we think of the presence of God and the person of God. And we see the people of God going into the presence of God. And all of this happens at the temple. And so what happens is, if you are a priest, you would make the pilgrimage from your sort of rural outpost 
to Jerusalem. You would stop at the base of the mount. You would undergo ceremonial washings. You would cleanse yourself and wear white, showing that you're forgiven in the sight of God. You would ascend up the holy mount. You would sing the psalms of praise to the glory of God. And then what would happen is they would literally roll the dice and you would do this if you were a priest twice a year. And out of the 750 men in your division, one number would be chosen. And then you would be invited to go in as close as you possibly were allowed to go to the presence of God. You only got to do this once in your whole life. And then your name was off the list. And you would light incense and you would offer a prayer. And incense is symbolic of prayer. Just as it is sweet and ascends, so prayer is sweet and ascends into the presence of God. So when you pray, dear friend, know that it goes into the presence of God. And it is sweetness to him. This is what we see in the book of Revelation. It's like there's this big bowl filled with the prayers of the saints and they are offered into the presence of God. And so Zechariah has year after year, this poor guy's life is so sad. He's rural, in the middle of nowhere. He's broke, he's elderly, they're barren. They've got nothing, they've got no one. And year after year and decade after decade, maybe 20, 30, 40 years, Okay, I'll walk all the way to Jerusalem. I'll stand in line with the 750 guys. There's another line of 750 guys. This is our opportunity for our divisions to get our number cast. They roll the dice, not me. I'll go home and tell Elizabeth I didn't get picked again. Year after year after year after year after year. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen. <laughs> Woo! This is, now, I'm not saying you should play the lotto, but imagine every day you're like, I bought a ticket and I lost, and I bought a ticket and I lost, and I bought a ticket and I lost, I bought a ticket, I'm buying a boat. I did not lose, okay? I, they pick my number. His number gets picked. His number gets picked. I don't know what day God has appointed to bless you, but there is a day he's appointed to bless you. Here is the day that is appointed for his blessing. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. It's, it's his big day. Now you think about it. It's just a few minutes of your whole life. Isn't it wonderful that we don't have to wait our whole life for just a few moments to briefly enter into the presence of God, that God's presence is with us and we can be in God's presence anywhere we want, anytime we want, for any length of time that we want. And if you invite the person, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to be there with you, God promises to never leave you, to never forsake you, okay? And the whole multitude of the people were praying at the hour of incense. So all of this is set up, right? It's, there's a plan. There's a procedure. There's a process. It's kind of like the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace. It's their turn. They're done. Next. Everything runs according to plan. It's common every day. And the people would be outside praying, interceding. And this is your one big moment. And so the story proceeds forward. And here is what happens. He walks in and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord. What? Can you imagine that? <laughs> like, uh, this is like you got the directions. There's a little one sheet. Hey, Zachariah, we picked your number, buddy. We rolled the dice. It's all you. Here's the little one sheet. It's like Ikea. Just follow the instructions. Do what you're told, son. Step one, get the incense. Done it. Step two, go into the presence of God there. Step three, light the uh, what do I do with the angel? No fine print. There's no, there, there's no, there's no directions for what to do with the angel. How many of you would be freaked out if an angel showed up? You'd be like, I don't know what I did, but I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Wherever he sent you to deal with, I will never do it again. I promise. You just tell him I'm sorry. Okay. He shows up, there's an angel. There's not supposed to be an angel there. What's an angel doing there? Some of you have questions about angels. First question would be, Pastor Mark, do you believe in angels? Yes. We believe in angels, uh, demons. I mean, some of you believe in vampires and, you know, minion hordes and honest politicians. Use your imagination, okay? <laughs> 
yes, we believe in angels, okay? And angels are in the Bible. They're messengers and they're ministers sent on behalf of the Lord. So they serve and they speak on behalf of the Lord. And Hebrews says that sometimes we entertain angels without even knowing it because they don't draw attention to themselves. They're there to subtly serve, oftentimes. I don't know if I've ever met an angel. I'll ask Jesus in the end. I've had visions, I've had dreams, I've had God speak to me. I don't know if I've ever met an angel. My father-in-law, who was a pastor, he's passed away. He told me about a story where he thinks he met an angel. He was uh, going overseas to train missionaries in a real hostile foreign context. And there was a lot of spiritual warfare and and stuff. So he was catching a connector flight. and, And he was older at the time. And so he was tired, probably a little dehydrated, a little disoriented. Got off the plane, went to the restroom, came out. And kind of got confused, kind of got a little disoriented. Couldn't figure out where am I going? Where's my connector? Where's my flight? What's going on here? And so he thought, I'm going to miss this flight and I'm going to miss this opportunity to go serve these missionaries who are planting these churches and reaching these people. So he stopped and he prayed and, you know, Lord, please help me. Opened his eyes. A guy walked up. He said, a guy walked up to me and said, speaking English in a foreign country. Uh, Sir, I see you're confused and it seems like you need some help. How can I serve you? Oh. I'm a pastor and I'm trying to get somewhere and I, I'm, I can't read the signs and I don't know where I'm going and I'm confused and I don't know how to catch my flight and I'm going to miss it. Oh, you love the Lord. I think the guy declared, oh, I love the Lord. I, you serve the Lord. I serve the Lord. Brother, I'm glad I'm here to serve you. And they visited and talked and my father-in-law reported, super great, nice guy. Takes him all the way right to his plane just in the nick of time to catch his flight. My father-in-law reported, he said, I went to grab my ticket out of my pocket and thank the guy. He was gone. And he said, I'm sitting in the airport. It's not busy. It's late at night. It's pretty barren. And you could see everybody and everything. The guy's just gone. Just gone. My father-in-law said, I I think that was an angel that God sent as as a minister and a messenger to help me. There may be things like this that happen all the time in our life that God sees that we don't see because he sees that which is supernatural and we only see that which is natural. But he shows up here and he sees an angel. An angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. I wish I knew what he was doing. I would. I wonder if he's smirking, waving, knuckles. I don't know what's going on here. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. How many of you would freak out a little bit? Freak out a little bit. And fear fell upon him. He's like, oh, no. My one big day to come near the Lord. And now I got a little meeting with an angel. This cannot be good for me. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been what? Heard. I, I would be surprised if this was a prayer that he kept praying. When you pray the same thing day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and it gets to the point where you're both senior citizens and your wife is barren. I think you probably stop praying this prayer. Probably stop praying this prayer. It's a prayer that was probably said previously and now it will be answered many years later. Here's what I need you to know. God hears all your prayers. And God answers them in one of three ways. Yes, no, later. God's a father. When we pray, it's like a child making a request of a parent. So I've got three kids. My kids, whatever they ask, the answer is yes, no, or later. Dad, it's bedtime. Can I have a sandwich? Yes. Dad, it's bedtime. Can I have a two liter of Mountain Dew? No. Dad, can I have some Mountain Dew tomorrow? Yes, that's for later. God answers all of our prayers, yes, no, or later. They had prayed for a long time and they thought the answer was what? No. God said, actually, the answer was later. Later, I need you to know that. Some of you have longings, desires, hopes, aspirations that are not ungodly. They're just unfulfilled and they're unmet. And the answer may be no, but the answer may be later. I love the fact that the angel tells him, your prayer made it to the Lord. He heard and he answered. And sometimes we think, God doesn't hear prayer. God doesn't answer prayer. And God says, sometimes I'm doing a lot more than you think. And just wait until I answer it because it'll be an even bigger and better answer than the one you were asking for. 
I want to give you hope. I can't give you a promise that God says yes to all your prayers, but some of your later prayers will become yes prayers when God's timing is fulfilled. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zachary, your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a what? A son. This is not through supernatural means like Mary will have shortly. This is through the natural means of a relationship between a husband and wife. And they're going to get a baby boy. And a baby boy is a blessing. The family name continues. The legacy continues. He'll take care of you. This is a blessing. But how many of you are thinking about it? How many of you are grandparents right now and the thought of having a baby? What? We're both in diapers. What? You know, like... Right, this is an older couple that now is going to become parents. And you shall call his name John. His name John. John means God is gracious. Elizabeth means God's oath or promise. And Zechariah means the Lord remembers. All of their names are prophetic in nature. You're going to have a son. His name will be John. And you will have joy. And gladness. We should celebrate life. God is the author of life. When someone brings life into the world, it's a blessing. It's a rejoicing. It's, it's a cherishing. It's an honoring. You need to know that here at the Trinity Church, we love the living God and we rejoice where there is life. When someone is born physically, we rejoice. When someone is born again spiritually, we rejoice. We want this to be a life-giving place because ours is a life-giving God. Amen? Amen? And so you'll have gladness and joy and many will rejoice at his birth. Not just will he be born and a blessing to you, he'll be a blessing to many. And let me say that this is what we should long for, hope for, pray for, plan for, for our own children. That they're a blessing to others, that others rejoice that they're alive, that others would look at our children and grandchildren and say, I'm glad they're here because the world is better with them and there would be an absence without them. Whatever you have, even before your children are born, speak life over them not death. Speak hope for them, not doom. Do not, do not, especially with your sons. And it can be very hard, mothers in particular, to have hope for your sons. You look at your son, you're like, okay. You need to have not hope in your son, but hope for your son. And your hope is in God. And what you don't do, you don't nag or criticize or doom your children. You raise up a standard of blessing that they can aspire to by the grace of God. You give something for them to hope for that they could be someone who loves and serves the Lord. And this is all what this angel is doing. He's speaking life into Abraham. He's speaking, or excuse me, into Zechariah and into Elizabeth. And he's speaking life over the birth of this child, John. We want the children that are born in this church to be brought into a place where there is rejoicing. We see them as blessing and we speak life over them. We speak blessing and prosperity for them. And we have hope of God's grace at work in their life for the future. And that the children that are born here will be a blessing and the world will be a better place because they entered into it in relationship with God through parents who loved and served the Lord. Amen? Amen? What? All of that, come on, amen? Okay, I'm gonna go to Craigslist and trade you some for Pentecostals and try to warm this place up, okay? You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. Herod was called Herod the Great and now the angel says, no, your son John will be John the Great and he must not drink wine or strong drink. Must not drink wine or strong drink. His cousin Jesus does turn water into wine. That's his first miracle. Does partake of wine. He does not abuse wine, but he does partake. John is told not to partake. Some of God's people can partake in freedom. Others should not. This is an issue of calling and conscience. Up until the age of 30, I did not consume any alcohol. I come from a long line of alcoholics and violent men, so I did not partake. I do not believe it is a sin, but it was something of my conscience and calling. And then at 30, I felt that the Lord gave me permission if I want to have a glass of wine reasonably without overindulgence or sin of any kind. And that's God's calling. And we want you here at the Trinity Church to have freedom to walk according to conscience and calling. That's why even at communion, we'll give you grape juice and we'll give you wine. It's according to conscience and calling. But let me just submit to you that maybe the reason God didn't want John to drink alcohol, he's a guy who doesn't need it. Okay. He's... 
he's, a, he's an intense fellow, this John. You know, how many of you have got that friend? He's always just so, woo, he's ready to go. Like, decaf, brother, decaf, decaf, okay, decaf. Tone it down, Johnny, tone it down, right? He's that guy. He, he's rural kid, homeschooled. He's way out in the woods. He, he wears Jedi robes. He's got like, I see him with a crazy afro. He's got like bugs coming out of his teeth because he eats them and he loves honey and he calls people to repentance and he yells a lot. That guy does not need any alcohol. That guy is already a situation, right? How many of you guys played football? Any of you guys played football? I played baseball. And then when I was in high school, I tried out for the football team. And because I had a good arm, they made me a quarterback. And so I thought, okay, cool. So I go to the first practice. They start with two-a-days. I show up. We're in the locker room. I put my pads on for the first time. I put my helmet on. I meet that guy. How many of you guys know the football team? That guy. Let's just call him John. John's like, it's awesome. I love football. First day of two-a-days. He walks up, puts his helmet on, and slams me right in the face. He's like, this is awesome. He's holding my face mask. I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. You know <laughs> John, and I was like, John, well, what's your name? My name's John. I love football. I said, what position do you play? He said, I'm a linebacker. Why do you play linebacker? Because I get to hit people. I love to hit people. And I play fullback. Why do you play fullback? It's the best position on offense to hit people. Let's go. Let's go. He's pounding my chest. I'm like, what the? I've joined a cult. And so... <laughs> We're out at practice, and I'm trying to figure out how to do a handoff, and John's the tailback, and there's another guy who's a fullback, and I hand the ball off, and I think, oh, there's no way the tailback's going to make it in the end zone, because there's a defensive end and a linebacker, and they're both collapsing in on John. And John literally takes an angle, decleats the first kid. The first kid is like a ballerina. Up he goes doing a pirouette slams him into the second kid, the defensive end. Next thing I know, they're both on the ground. John's on top of them. Here's what John's doing. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Tailback literally sort of dances in the end zone, does a little dance, everybody cheers, and I'm thinking, it's all because of John. <laughs> Jesus is coming. John's the fullback. You get that? <laughs> He's that guy. God looks at him like he tells the parents, don't let him drink. Right? <laughs> He's that guy, right? He's that guy. Okay. But he will be filled with uh, Holy Spirit in from his mother's womb. He doesn't need to be filled with the spirit, alcohol. He needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. All right. Man, you know you're out of shape when you're breathing hard for preaching. Gosh. <laughs> I think I pulled hammy too, man. I got a situation. So let me unpack this. So John's going to be in his mother's womb. Oh, you know what? Oh, he has a name. You know why he has a name? He's a person. Would somebody let America know this, please? He's a person with a name. God, the Bible tells us that God knows us from our mother's womb, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made in our mother's womb, that God knit us together in our mother's womb. John is a person and he has a name. Not only that, he's filled with a Holy Spirit. You can be born again before you're born. You can be born again spiritually before you're born physically. We're going to get into this as we continue forward because this issue comes up, but it's really the issue of life. Herod is going to try and kill all the babies. Herod's going to try and kill all the babies. That's the wrong king in the wrong kingdom. God, this king and his kingdom, he puts life in the womb. He gives dignity to life in the womb. He names the life in the womb and he sends his spirit to regenerate the life in the womb. See, politicians think like Herod. Christians, Christians think like Dr. Luke. This is written by a doctor who says, let me tell you about unborn life and how God sees it. Now, I have good news for you. If you have had an abortion or you've been a man who's participated in some way by encouraging abortion, you would ask, Pastor Mark, what happened to our child? I would say, God is a father. God knew your child from the womb. God named your child from the womb. And if God chose to, he could have saved your child, filled them with the Holy Spirit from the womb. 
from the womb. So I hope that gives you hope. Just know that at the Trinity Church, we love everyone. There's forgiveness for anyone, but we value life. And that we believe that those who are unborn, just because they can't vote, that we should vote for them. And because they don't have a voice, that we should be a voice for them. And just because they have not yet entered this world, they can dwell in his presence. And I love the fact that John the baptizer is filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. You can't get any more saved than that, my friend. You can't get any more saved than that. These are the parts of the story that for some reason our culture ignores. The Magi, a lot of airtime. The shepherds, a lot of airtime. Mary and Joseph, a lot of airtime. Luke says, well, before we get there, let's talk about Elizabeth and Zechariah and John. Because this is all part of God's work in human history. The story continues. And he will turn many. This is the promise and the prophecy about the son. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He's an evangelist. He, that is John, will go before him. That is Jesus, right? He's the fullback. He's clear in the path. In the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of God, an exceedingly powerful prophet of God. There's only two guys in the Bible that didn't die, Enoch and Elijah. Enoch and Elijah didn't die. They they just were taken into God's presence. Elijah is so awesome, God sent a chariot. You know you're doing good when God's like, you don't need to die. I'm sending a limo. Just get in and pour yourself a drink and woo, wave goodbye. He just, he got a chariot ride to God. Awesome. Amen. You're just like, I wonder what team he was on. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I know. Right? First class ticket into the presence of God. So if you're growing up and you have a baby and you're a Hebrew mama, you're like, hey, make them like Elijah, Lord. Make them like Elijah. Elijah worked, he lived, he ministered, he prophesied, he preached by the power of the Holy Spirit. There was an anointing on him. There was an authority on him that was of God. It was undeniable and it was unequaled. And the angel says, "Uh, Zechariah, by the way, your boy's going to be like that. This is an exciting thing. And if you know the scriptures, a haunting thing. Every prophet receives opposition. Every prophet becomes outcast. Every prophet gets sent through the wood chipper by the religious critics. Every prophet gets slandered and every prophet gets outcast until ultimately they put the prophets to death. So this had to be a collision of emotion. My boy's going to love it, serve the Lord, but oh, I know what they do to the prophets who call people to repentance. See, that's the opposite of a call to tolerance. Our culture preaches a call to tolerance. God preaches a call to repentance. God will take you as you are, but he wants to change you. So the tolerance comes first. The repentance comes next. People have no problem hearing about the love of God, the welcoming of God, the grace of God, the perseverance, the forbearance, the kindness of God, when they hear about the holiness of God, the justice of God, the commands of God, the demands of God, the repentance that God requires, there is a violent conflict between two kingdoms, and those who bring that message find themselves in the middle of the collision. John will be one who proclaims repentance. And it says that the result will be, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared to get ready for Jesus. What this angel is quoting, he's quoting Malachi 3 and 4, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the last two chapters, says that God will send a prophet, he will preach repentance, preparing the way for the coming of Jesus to the temple, which was destroyed in 70 AD, so that gives us a historical deadline. And it closes by saying that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Otherwise, a curse will come upon a land. Let me tell you this. Our land is cursed because our fathers do not have hearts for their children. 
because fathers do not have hearts for their children. There are men who want sex and not marriage. They want pregnancy and not birth. They want to bring children into the world without bringing children up in the world. For the first time in the nation's history, the majority of children born to women 30 and under are born out of wedlock. That tonight, 40% of children go to bed with no father. And you could take every social ill that we are facing and you could trace it back to the heart of a father. To a heart of a father. And so when John comes, his message will be one that will cause fathers to love their children. Not just sex, but marriage. Not just birthing, but fathering. And his message will cause children to have a heart for their father, to get rid of this inane, stupid, generational anticipation of rebellion. As if you had a rite of passage to rebuke your parents, to ignore your parents, to defy your parents. That is the kingdom of Herod, not the kingdom of God. You know that a prophet has come when men's hearts change and their children respond. And you know that God's word has not rung loudly in this land when you look at the hearts of the men and the bitterness of their children. And Zechariah said to the angel, let me just say this for us men. Sometimes we should just stop talking. And all the women said, amen. Amen. Okay. Amen. Ladies are like, I like where he's going with this point. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Says who? (laughs) What? For I am an old man. Oh, really? The cane, the dentures, the white hair, the squinting. Had no idea. And my wife is advanced in years. The angel's like, we knew that. You know, we knew that. You're not not, not surprising us. Story continues. The angel answered him. I wonder if he said like this. I'm Gabriel. Right? Right? Like, who else do you want? Oh, okay. You you say it's going to happen. Well, who else? who, Who else is there? Like, there's only two angels in the Bible. We know their name, Gabriel and Michael, right? Like these, these guys are up the food chain, right? They're commanders. They got, they got a lot of bars down their sleeve. And he's, Gabriel's like, well, let me give you my resume. I, uh, here's what I do all day. I, uh, I, uh, I stand in the presence of the Lord. That's, that's what I do. So, and today he said, go tell Zacharias. So I came to tell you, it's a boy. And Zachariah's like, I don't think so. <laughs> Who else do you want me to call? Like, I, <laughs> like I can't. Like I, we just worked our way up the food chain, right? So I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Sometimes there's nothing to say. There's nothing to do. We just need to wait and we need to worship. Okay. Lord, you said you're going to do something. I know you're going to do it. You do it whenever you want. Until then, I'm just not going to say anything because talking about it doesn't really contribute to it. There are certain things that only God can do, and until he does them, there's really nothing to talk about. Ladies, how blessed is Elizabeth? (laughs) The Bible talks about a double portion. Here's a double portion. He's going to come home. He can't tell her. It's going to be like... And my wife and my husband's mute. Oh, Lord. I can just see Elizabeth. Oh, Lord, you do hear and answer all prayer. Thank you, Lord. I'm, I'm richly blessed. I, I'm pregnant with a mute husband for nine months. Oh, thank you, Lord. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they're wondering what the delay in the temple is. So they're all out praying and they're just like, where, where is he? What is he? What is he doing? This one takes forever. Why does he pray so long? What the, my knees are killing me. <laughs> the story continues. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. So he's doing charades. This is kind of funny, I think. He's like, uh, angel, uh, pregnant, shut up. <laughs> 
And they realized he'd seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them. He's like doing really bad, you know. Oh, good. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Can you imagine that? He's walking home like, what a day. What a day this was. (laughs) How am I going to explain this to my wife? Isn't it great what God did for them? It's great what God did for them. It's great what God did for them. God wants to do great for you too. Let me give the last word to Elizabeth. I love her. Of all the people in the Bible, for some reason, I have a particular affection for Elizabeth. First of all, I just really like pastor's daughters. I'll just throw that out there. So I like her because she's a pastor's daughter. She loves and serves the Lord. She's faithful to her husband. And she had this hope, this prayer, this request, this desire, this longing. It's like she wrote on a balloon, Lord, give me a baby. She let go. She waited 10, 20, 30, maybe 40 years. No baby came. And then God tells her the answer. My daughter is later, not no. The answer's later, not no. Elizabeth speaks. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Can you imagine that? She's old enough to be a grandma. I felt him kick. This is crazy. And for five months, she kept herself hidden. When you know that you're in the will of God, you don't need anyone else's approval, you don't need to tell the world. God told me, that's all I need to hear. No one else needs to know. Saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. You know what? Nobody looked at Elizabeth. Elderly, barren, poor woman in a small rural town with a nameless, faceless husband and a ministry that no one ever heard about. And what she says is, the Lord looked at me. Hmm. Do you know that the Lord looks at you? He knows your name. He knows your face. He knows the longings of your heart. He knows the future that he has for you. He loves you. He cares for you. God is a good father. And all you sons and daughters need to know that he looks at you. And he does so with a smile. Elizabeth says, I can't believe it. I didn't know whether or not he was looking at me. I wasn't sure that he was paying attention to me. I was trying to do the right thing. But I didn't even know if it mattered. He looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Was Elizabeth a godly or an ungodly woman? Godly. What was her reputation, godly or ungodly? Ungodly. Ungodly. This word, reproach, it can mean to revile. Women reviled her. It can mean disgrace. Disgrace. Women disgraced her. People disgraced her. Have you ever heard of a police file that is listed persona non grata? You ever heard that term? You know what that literally means? A person without grace. Elizabeth is persona non grata. She's a person without grace. It can mean abuse. She was emotionally, spiritually, verbally abused. It can mean an object of disgrace or shame. There was a misunderstanding. People are the product of their teaching. And some people were apparently poorly taught. They were taught, children are a blessing. And if you don't have a child, it must be because God is cursing you. God does good things for good people and he does bad things for bad people. And since he didn't do a good thing for you, you must be a bad person. That's karma, not Christ. 
Elizabeth was, she was, she was shamed. Hey, have you met Elizabeth? Yeah. Isn't her husband the pastor? Yeah. They seem like really great people. Well, looks can be deceiving. Well, they seem to love and serve the Lord. Well, obviously there's more to the story because their whole life, all she prays for is a baby and God keeps saying no and the rest of us all have babies and she doesn't have a baby. And if she doesn't have a baby, it must be because there's some secret sin we don't know. They're not who you think they are. They must have some sort of private life. I've heard some rumors and gossiping and busybodying about them and the result is they're probably not good people. This causes a woman like Elizabeth to withdraw and retreat. They have written the story of Elizabeth's life as one of shame. And then God gets the last word. And he determines that this is not a story of reproach, but a story of redemption. This was not a story of him withholding his blessing, but him waiting to multiply his blessing. This had nothing to do with her ungodliness. This was an opportunity for her to demonstrate her godliness. Some of you, Know that your sins are forgiven because of the death of Jesus. But you don't know that your shame is lifted because of the death of Jesus. The Bible says that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. I love you. It's a great honor to be your pastor. I have been praying for you all week. I believe that if you know the truth, the truth sets you free. And I believe that some of you have been living under this bondage of shame. That someone has told the story of your life or you have told the story of your life in a way that is death bringing, not life causing. That you are wearing shame. My encouragement would be if someone puts it on you, just don't let it in you. Somehow Elizabeth was forced to wear this shame for decades, and it was on her, but she did not allow it to get in her. She knew that's not who she was. She knew that's not how God saw her. She knew that's not how God felt about her. Some of you have shame because of things you have done. God, through the Holy Spirit today, wants to take that shame off of you. You are not defined by what you've done, but you're defined by what Jesus has done. You are righteous, not unrighteous. You are forgiven, not condemned. Some of you have carried shame because of things that others have done to you or said about you or ways they have harmed you or abused you. And you carry that shame because that is the story of your life that they have written. If it is not the story that God has written, The Holy Spirit today, he wants to take that shame off of you. I literally want you to experience a spiritual deliverance today. I want the shame lifted. I want the shame lifted. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what has been done to you. All that matters is what Jesus has done for you. He died for your sin. He endured the cross scorning the shame. He took your sin and your shame and he brought you here today so that you could give him your sin and you could give him your shame. That he could lift that shame, that burden, so that your heart could be full, that your mind could be hopeful, that your soul could be relieved. That you could take a deep breath of God's grace and leave this place without that burden of shame upon you and that identity of shame haunting you. I love that we get to give the final word to Elizabeth today. And I want you to receive from the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit the same gift that she received.
Father, I pray right now for a supernatural, spiritual breakthrough for my friends. I thank you so much, Lord God, that I get to be the pastor at the Trinity Church. I thank you that we get to open your word, that we get to hear the big story about Jesus. We get to hear the little stories about people in relationship with Jesus. And we get to interpret our story in light of the great story. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died for our sin and our shame. We thank you that you take our sin and our shame. We thank you that the whole point of this story is the coming of the Lord Jesus, that he might live without sin, that he might die for sin, that he might forgive sin, that he might lift shame. I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. I pray against the lies of the enemy. I pray against the demonic accusations. I pray against the powers, principalities, and spirits that have enslaved dear people. I pray, Lord God, for those who have walked with you like Elizabeth and also like Zechariah. I pray for those, Lord God, who have been lied about. I pray for those who have been falsely accused. I pray for those who have been gossiped about. I pray for those who have been misunderstood. I pray for those who have been rejected. I pray for those who have been dejected. And Lord God, I pray that right now, they like Elizabeth would know that you have looked upon them. And right now, you are looking upon them. And you see sons and daughters who you love. You see people that you care for and you long to bless and do good for. Lord God, I ask your presence to be with us now. I ask for a healing and a deliverance among your people. I pray that people who came here wearing shame would walk away wearing joy. In the name of Jesus, amen.